You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Esther Rakusin, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. In the month of March, we are recognizing the contributions of women scientists to all fields of science. And this is our last edition of our special Women's History Month shows. But don't worry, we will continue to hear from women scientists in our upcoming shows. Today, you'll hear a podcast from Cornell graduate student and locally sourced science contributor, Candace Limper. She speaks with fellow graduate student Dr. Scarlett Lee from the Department of Microbiology and Immunology in the Cornell College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Lee, who is a veterinarian, talks about what is known so far about COVID-19 disease in humans of different ages. She discusses the disease in light of her research interest, which is the effect of age on the immune system. After that, you'll hear Liz Mahood's profile about Dr. Mary Guinan, the Dean of the College of Community Health Sciences at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And finally, you'll hear an interview of Dr. Jara Jain, a veterinarian and senior extension associate at the Animal Health Diagnostic Lab in the College of Veterinary Medicine at Cornell University. She talks about zoonotic diseases such as COVID-19 that can spread from animals to humans. But first off, here's Candace Limper's interview of Dr. Scarlett Lee. Welcome to Excelsior, a podcast aimed to inform the general public about immunology. Given the current pandemic novel coronavirus, the next few episodes are going to include interviews with doctors, immunologists, virologists, epidemiologists, business persons, and graduate students, where they will tell us what the data says about this new virus and describe how and why it is affecting our everyday lives. With that in mind, let's begin. I'm Dr. Scarlett Lee. I'm a veterinarian currently pursuing a PhD at Cornell University. I do research in the labs of Brian Rudd and Brian Vanderven, where I study immunity in early life. Specifically, I look at um, the ability of immune cells to respond to the pathogen tuberculosis. If you're interested in following more of my thoughts on the current coronavirus outbreak, you can follow me at DVM underscore Scarlett, S-C-A-R-L-E-T-T, on Twitter. Awesome. Thanks. So I guess we'll dive in. What is most intriguing to you right now about the coronavirus and how it's spreading? As a immunology PhD student that studies age-related immunity, I think it is really fascinating that there is a, a huge disparity in response between individuals who are young and very young and individuals who are very old. That's something we don't necessarily see with every pathogen. Some pathogens tend to impact individuals who are very young very harshly in addition to those who are old. 
in the news, a lot of people are saying that the coronavirus or COVID-19 is only affecting people that are older, but it seems like that is actually not the case. So, Yeah, that's definitely not the case. And uh, something that's important to think about is that there's that you can still be infected by anything, and especially the coronavirus, and not necessarily show symptoms or show mild symptoms. There's a huge variation of disease that we're seeing with this virus as well. And even though initially in the news they portrayed that individuals who are young, especially even babies, were unable to become infected, we now know that even neonates can be infected with the virus. What is considered to be a neonate? So typically, a a neonate is considered to be a newborn child, and a more technical definition is an infant less than four weeks of age. Have there been any cases of neonates with the new strain of coronavirus? Yes, there have been several documented cases of of coronavirus infection in neonates where they've been able to actually um, isolate viral nucleic acids from neonates. So yes, it is clear that neonates can be infected with the virus. Are there any data or anecdotal comments from physicians suggesting that pregnant women are more susceptible? Or So again, this is something that is changing on a daily basis, but this is another good sign that currently it doesn't look like pregnant women are more likely to become infected than non-pregnant women. And they also don't look like they're more likely to get more severe symptoms than non-pregnant women. That's great news. So sometimes viruses can infect the mother and then be transmitted to the baby through the womb or through breast milk. Has there been any data or reports on that? Yeah, that's a great question. And luckily, so far, there has not been any reports of the mother passing the virus into fetus or what we like to call vertical transmission while the woman is still pregnant. There have been there was one case in England where a neonate was infected right after birth, but there was no strong evidence that again this was uh, happened during birth. And um, some more good news is that the virus has not been detected in the breast milk of infected women, so it's not believed that that's a route in which the baby can become infected. Well, that's also exciting news and hopefully that doesn't change. So when babies are born, are their lungs fully developed at that point, or is there like a period where they, it takes a certain amount for the baby's lungs to develop fully, and like, and during that time, are they more susceptible to uh, viral infections that would potentially maybe affect the lungs? So a baby's lungs are mature at 36 weeks of gestation, so if the baby is born at 36 to 38 weeks or later, their lungs are mostly mature. However, I'm not aware of any studies that looked at babies born at around 36 weeks or less to see if they were more susceptible to the virus. Do we know anything about the immune system where it's housed different babies and adults and maybe how that could influence how they're able to fight this uh, new virus? So yeah, that's a, that's a great question. The immune system of babies and especially of neonates is very different than the immune system of adults. Uh, we have a variety of different immune cells in our bodies. And the interesting thing is that during fetal time, those immune cells come from a different pool of stem cells than immune cells produced later in life do. So all of the immune cells in a baby or in a neonate baby tend to come from a different origin than those from an adult. Immune cells in an adult come from the bone marrow, right? Mm -hmm. And so neonates and young babies, they come from a different spot? 
Yeah, so it depends on the immune cell, but a lot of them come from fetal tissues like the fetal liver, which don't exist later on in life. So that actually impacts their ability to fight infection. And that's actually an ongoing field of research and something that we look at in the in the Red Lab. And initially it was thought that the immune system early in life was deficient, but now we're starting to appreciate that the immune system early in life just responds differently to infections. They seem to to respond very robustly to certain infections. However, the unfortunate thing about the, the neonate immune system or the fetal immune system is that they don't seem to form a memory response well. And what that means is that when you're infected with a pathogen, your body recognizes that pathogen and it, it keeps a few cells around after you've cleared that infection so that if you get infected by that pathogen again, you can respond to it quickly. However, if you're infected by a pathogen when you're a neonate or in utero, this memory response is impaired. Okay, so say, for example, a neonate or an infant uh, was infected with any pathogen, one would be including the coronavirus, it may not remember it later on in life because it doesn't have the ability to remember that pathogen. It's possible. Again, there's been no research into this in terms of coronavirus, but that is true of other pathogens, yes. Yeah, so going on a little bit more about about the novel coronavirus infection in children, I'd like to emphasize that children are still able to get infected with the coronavirus, but they do seem to get less severe symptoms. Um, However, some still have had to be hospitalized, but luckily none of them have shown acute respiratory distress. And what is acute respiratory distress? So that is the form of the disease or sudden acute respiratory distress that we've seen in adults that have has led to death where they get fulminant pneumonia and their body basically is producing a lot of inflammation that causes a lot of their organs to not function correctly. So luckily we haven't seen that yet in children. So hopefully that continues to be true, but they do show some clinical signs, uh, most commonly fever and cough. But the severe illness, again, seems to be limited to those with underlying conditions. Now, this is really interesting. A lot of children are more susceptible to other pathogens like the flu virus, even though I really don't like that people are comparing this to the flu virus because they're very different. And this is, again, one way in which flu differs. So there's been a number of hypotheses about why children are not as impacted by the coronavirus. And of course, these are all hypotheses and we don't know what's true currently. But just to talk about some of the ones that are more interesting. So I've seen recently is that melatonin, which is a hormone that regulates the sleep-wake cycle, is known to be upregulated early in life. And basically, it's upregulated in children and decreases as you go into adolescence and as you become an adult. And when you're older, you produce very little melatonin. And so melatonin is actually known to decrease inflammatory immune responses. So this has been one hypothesis because children have much more melatonin. Interestingly, too, the immune system early in life, especially when you're uh, very young, similar to the pregnant immune system, kind of veers more towards the regulatory side of things. So your body doesn't respond very strongly to pathogens because you have a specific type of immune cell. These cells exist early on in life to help you tolerate your own organs. And so early on in life, you have more of these cells than later on in life. So like more Tregs? Exactly. So especially in in the fetus, they have a very high of their T cells, almost 30, 40, 50% of them are Tregs. And that decreases as you age. 
So some other things that have been posited is that children, maybe they're the way they partake in activities, the fact that they travel less, all might make them less likely to contract the virus. Of course, these are all hypotheses. And in the future, I know that there will be tons of studies, both epidemiological and immunological, to look at what the underlying reason is for this for this difference in infection between adults and children. So what I thought, you know how when you're pregnant, you have kind of a, a suppressed immune system? Have you thought of maybe that can also play a factor in pregnant women are less susceptible to getting like a strong yes. reaction to coronavirus? Yeah, so that's something I thought about too. Again, that type of T cell, the T regulatory cell is high in pregnant women. It's a T cell so that they tolerate their fetus and don't reject their fetus. And again, that does help uh, stop a lot of it inflammation. So yeah, I've, I've definitely thought that that's one similarity. And again, it's also known that me- pregnant women have a lot of melatonin. So that's, that's been another reason that people have thought that maybe this is occurring. So f- from what I've read is that um, people are dying from cytokine storms in lung. And that is that an overreaction? So from what I've read in some preprint journals, so those are academic journals that have not been peer-reviewed, it seems like the cytokine storm might be caused by two types of T cells, a Th17 cell, which is a, a type of immune cell that's normally known for causing autoimmune disorders, and a CD8 T cell, or what you may have know as a killer T cell. So these two types of cells are producing lots of cytokines or basically an inflammatory stimulus that's causing just too much inflammation for the body to handle. So what I've read also on BioArchive was that there was uh, more senescent cells, so CD4 and CD8. I don't know which specific CD4. It may have just been a blanket, but in patients that were in having infection. Yeah, I did see that article as well. So something uh, that's also clear about these patients is that they're leukopenic, which is a fancy word to say that they don't have a lot of white blood cells or T cells in their body. Um, and the ones that are there seem to be displaying markers indicating that they're not, after infection, capable of producing more cytokines or responding to more infection. Something else about uh, children being impacted differently than adults is that they have something else that we've thought about with other infections is that hormone levels are very different in terms of sex hormones in children. Um, For instance, testosterone and estrogen are produced at very different ratios and amounts early on in life. And this is something that could also possibly, this is the hypothesis, of course, contribute to some of the differences we're seeing. And also, it seems like males are more predisposed to getting more fulminant or worse disease in this case, too. And that it could also be hormone-related. A lot of the immune cells actually have receptors on them to respond to, to sex hormones. So. so I heard that in terms of infectious diseases, men are generally just always more likely to be affected. That does seem to be true for most infectious diseases, yes, that men are more predisposed. And that's also true for, yeah, tuberculosis, which I study. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Again, that's we don't necessarily know why that's true, that males seem to be more susceptible to a lot of diseases. It could be related to hormones. It could not be. It really depends. So, like, what what would you have to say for women that are pregnant or that have, like, really young kids at home. They're just scared. What advice do you have? Yeah. So for first for a pregnant woman, I would say that the evidence so far is, I wouldn't say that it's positive, but it's not overly negative. It doesn't seem like pregnant women are more susceptible to the coronavirus. And 
So for a pregnant woman, I would advise them to act like any individual in this case, to stay at home as much as possible and to limit their exposure to other people. If they do that, then hopefully they will not become infected. In terms of people with children, I think they should behave like their children can become infected with the disease. Uh, We have seen, you know, at first a lot of people were opposed to schools closing, but now we know that children can be infected. Something else that is currently not known is how children contribute to, to the spread of disease if they're shedding the virus at high rates or low rates. So that's another unknown currently. But I would say act like your children are adults and have them behave in the same way. Stay at home as much as possible. No playdates, no exposure to individuals who are not in your home normally. This is not a mini vacation. Exactly. This is not a mini vacation. I know this is very difficult for children to understand, um, but it's very important for, for both your child and for others. I mean, and even if they're not showing the worst parts of the disease they still some children are showing signs of disease and have had to go to the doctor to get intravenous fluids or um, other measures so it can be you know more serious than a normal flu in some children so stay at home um, keep your children busy but inside thank you scarlet for your time and the advice for the general people hopefully that reassures them that it's going to be okay Yes, thank you so much for inviting me. And yes, again, if you want to stay up to date with me, follow me at Twitter at DVM underscore Scarlet. And I will try to post when I find more information out about pregnant women and children and how this relates to the novel coronavirus. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone that listened and stay tuned for the next episode. You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Check out our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. At that site, you can subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. Hello, Locally Sourced Science listeners. My name is Liz Mahood. Throughout the month of March, Locally Sourced Science has featured women scientists to celebrate Women's History Month. This episode features Dr. Mary Guinan, who is the current Dean of the School of Community Health Sciences at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and a pioneer of STD epidemiology research. Dr. Guinan received a PhD in physiology from the University of Texas in 1969 and an MD from John Hopkins University School of Medicine in 1972, despite the self-proclaimed limited opportunities for admission to medical schools for women. After completing her residency, Dr. Guinan was inspired by the World Health Organization's program to completely eliminate smallpox from the world through human efforts. Dr. Guinan applied several times to a branch of this program based in India, and was initially rejected because she was a woman. When protesting WHO's rejection, they replied, quote, It's really not the WHO that's keeping women out. It's India. India says no woman in the smallpox program, end quote. She then appealed to the director of the program in India, saying, quote, You know the Prime Minister of India is a woman. Does she know you're banning women American physicians from entering the smallpox eradication program? End quote. When the director said nothing, Dr. Guinan continued, quote, Well, should I write to Indira Gandhi directly, or should I write to the Embassy of the United States and ask them to rescind this ban? End quote. After this, she was accepted into the program without any further objections. After the program completed, 
the smallpox infection rate of the region of India Dr. Guarnan worked in fell to zero. Two years after completing her work in this program, Dr. Guarnan joined the Center for Disease Control as a clinical research investigator in the Venerable Disease Control Division, which eventually became the STD Division. She became the national expert on genital herpes and, through a successful media campaign, decreased herpes infection rates through popularizing condoms. In the early 1980s, Dr. Guarnan shifted focus to study and raise awareness of the emerging age epidemic. Dr. Guarnan was one of the first researchers to receive funding from the CDC to research and educate the public about AIDS. Dr. Guarnan was faced with considerable challenges when raising awareness about AIDS. Many news outlets did not want to cover the epidemic, as early research identified homosexual populations as most affected. Nevertheless, Dr. Guinan was a leader of AIDS research and eventually created and served on the CDC's AIDS Task Force. Throughout her efforts to spread awareness of AIDS and accurate information through the general public, Dr. Guinan became increasingly frustrated with the American media. In a notable example, when a CNN reporter asked Dr. Guinan if she was, quote, sure you couldn't catch AIDS from a toilet seat, end quote, Dr. Guinan responded with, quote, the only way that I know you can get AIDS is if you sit on it before someone else gets up, end quote. Dr. Guinan went on to serve as Chief of Evaluation for the Nationwide HIV Prevention Program from 1990 through 1995. In her 20-year career at the CDC, she was the first woman to serve in the position of Chief Scientific Advisor. In 1998, Dr. Guinan also became the first woman to hold the role of Nevada State Chief Health Officer. Throughout her career, Dr. Guinan made important public health discoveries, advocated for communities of all people, and was a pioneer for women epidemiologists. I'm Liz Mahood, and that was our episode's focus on a woman in STEM. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science. Earlier this month, I spoke with a veterinarian who studies common diseases of poultry and advises poultry producers how to keep their flocks free of disease. Dr. Jara Jain is a senior extension associate at the Animal Health Diagnostic Lab in the College of Veterinary Medicine at Cornell University. In light of the COVID-19 pandemic, we talked about respiratory viruses and how to keep them from spreading. We also discussed zoonotic viruses, that is, viruses that can spread from animals to humans. Dr. Jain comments on whether we should be worried about zoonoses in the future. I started out asking Dr. Jain to talk about the zoonotic diseases that can spread from chickens to humans. The really serious viral zoonotic uh, disease that we have that goes from uh, uh, avian uh, to humans is uh, highly pathogenic avian influenza, especially H5N1. What do those letters and numbers mean? Uh, those are the proteins that are found on the um, on the virus, and that is how uh, they are typed. Uh, the H stands for hemagglutinin, and the N is for neuraminidase. So, for example, in humans, we tend to get a lot of H3 influences, H1s, and so on. And the bad ones in, in avian, uh, H5 and H7. 
Dr. Jain then talked about how influenza viruses and coronaviruses can both cause respiratory disease, but they are completely different types of viruses. Can you talk about coronaviruses? Influenza viruses are a separate group. Coronaviruses are a separate group. What I know from uh, my specialty, uh, coronaviruses are respiratory uh, viruses. They affect the respiratory system. Um, we find we see them in many different kinds of animals. Cats have their coronavirus. Dogs do. Chickens, turkeys, um, cows. Uh, we have a very um, bad coronavirus in calves that causes diarrhea. Uh, that one does not cause as much as the respiratory, but bovine bovine diarrhea um, is coronavirus caused. Um, and then, of course, the common cold. Um, that we see in humans is a coronavirus. So coronaviruses are many and diverse. And, you know, we had SARS as a coronavirus, MERS as a coronavirus. So they've been around for much longer than we human beings have. <laughs> so, but these viruses change. The only similarity I see with coronaviruses and influenza viruses is that they're among uh, the viruses that change the, the genetics very, very easily. I asked Dr. Jain if it is possible that severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 or SARS-CoV-2, the disease that causes COVID-19, came from an animal. Is it a possibility that the virus that is currently circulating around the world could have come from an animal um, being sold at a market. I think the first cases were people who were at, uh, came from a wild, wildlife, you know, wildlife market. So it's it's very possible. It's very possible that this virus found a way to move from an animal and adapt in in a human. I wondered what makes it possible for an animal virus to attack human cells. Yeah. Yeah, especially in the respiratory tract, they have to have those uh, uh, receptors to be able to attach. And once they attach, they can reproduce very rapidly. I then asked Dr. Jain how people can protect themselves from COVID-19. What we see coming from the CDC, I mean, these viruses tend to be very labile, especially coronaviruses. Um, they're sensitive to heat, they're sensitive to disinfectants, they're sensitive to soaps, detergents. So it's just uh, infection control. Uh, people uh, being very uh, conscious about how they sneeze and how they cough, uh, using a tissue or sneezing or coughing in the crook of their arm, uh, in the elbow. So, I mean, these are just like what you will say um, uh, just hygienic measures that people should take because many of these viruses are very easy to destroy. That's just part of my routine, hand washing um, constantly, all the time, um, because that's just the nature of our work, those of us who work uh, in the veterinary field. Do you predict that there would be more zoonoses in the future? Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely, because uh, we have a lot of emerging 
diseases. And in fact, the World Health Organization uh, says that over 65% of uh, new diseases are zoonotic. And uh, so that's a, that's a really high figure. And we keep seeing new viruses. There have been projects, um, actually through the U.S. government. Uh, one was called Respond, where they were going to different countries in Asia and in Africa, and they were trapping wild animals and, and looking at the viruses that these wild animals have. So there's like probably hundreds of thousands of viruses still out there. Uh, and uh, with encroachment of humans into um, certain environments, we're going to come into contact with these wild animals. So sooner or later, there's going to be another one. There's a lot of uh, contact between humans and wild animals, a lot more than was uh, than, than before. So, seeing that the problem of emerging diseases is not going away, hopefully public health officials and science policymakers will pay attention and provide more funding for the CDC and similar agencies around the world. You've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusin, and I produce today's show. Candace Limper produced the interview of Dr. Scarlett Lee, and Liz Mahood wrote the profile of Dr. Mary Guanin. We thank Joe Lewis for our theme music. Other music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Ben Jordan. Tune in again on April 14th and April 28th for more reports about the science of COVID-19. In April, we will also recognize Earth Day. Science out.